Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that all of our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross, and when we're saved, sin is no longer an issue in terms of our eternal destiny. Nevertheless, when we sin, it does break our fellowship with God. It does impact our ongoing momentum in our spiritual growth and the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, ministry of walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, all of these things end. And then when we confess our sins, then there is forgiveness, cleansing, and we can then resume our uh, forward momentum in the Christian life. So let's bow our heads. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's your word that is eternal value. It is true light because it is sourced in your character, sourced in your thinking, and you have revealed it to us through individual human beings who, though they were sinners and though they were fallen, nevertheless, in your sovereignty, you managed the writing of the scripture so that that which they wrote was without error and infallible, and it is through your word that you teach us, inform us, and strengthen us, and encourage us, and refresh us. Father, we pray that we would be refreshed tonight as we study your word, that we would, we would be encouraged, that we would understand even more so the priority of prayer in our lives and the importance of it and the things that we do and our, the way we handle the uh, difficulties, the challenges, the adversities that come our way. And Father, we pray that our focus tonight would be on the teaching and on your word, and that we would put aside all those things that distract us, that we may be able to think through our lives and think through uh, the teaching in terms of its application to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last couple of days have been kind of a fun day for me. Some of you know that on, uh, I guess, Monday, Tuesday night, Dan Ingram was here, pastor of the North, I mean, the National Capital Bible Church. I always have to get the definite article there. And Dan flew in on Monday afternoon, and he and I have been friends for many years. And so we always have a good time together. And we had a great time the last couple of days. After class Tuesday night, we 
uh, jumped in the car, took off, and drove up to San Antonio uh, for the purpose of he wanted to spend some time with his uncle, who's 87, lives there in an uh, Air Force retirement village. And that's a totally different story, but just to sort of tweak your curiosity, his uncle was shot down by, unfortunately, by friendly British fire as he was returning from a uh, foray over into uh, France in the in August of 1942, and so he ended up in the English Channel. The only place he could get to was the French coast, which was only two miles away, and as a result, he was immediately captured by the Germans and spent the remainder of the war in the Luftstalag number no. three, which happened to be featured on a on a uh, National Geographic special the other night on the Great Escape, because that was the basis. What they did at that uh, Luftstalag was the basis for that film, The Great Escape, and he was one of the tunnel, one of three t- American tunnel diggers on the tunnels. And unfortunately, just before they were to escape, uh, it was discovered the Americans were moved out to another. Uh, to another camp, and so uh, he didn't participate uh, in in that. But he had some tremendous, we just went through a day and a half of stories. Last night we had the great privilege of visiting our friend Jeremy Thomas up in Fredericksburg, who's the pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church. And Jeremy did a fabulous job teaching, Start has just I think last week he must have just started this study on Hosea, which is a great study. He just did a great job teaching the Word last night. But what was even more impressive was something that both Dan and I observed and that we think is a, really represents a good example, a wonderful example, and a challenge to a lot of Christians today. There, If you look around this congregation, you will notice that we're missing something. We're missing young families with children. Now, last night, when we were at his Bible class, Jeremy has four children. Here he is with three of them. Of course, um, what's the youngest one's name, Dan? Cora. Cora is just about five months old. And so she was sitting in there and... uh Jeremy's wife, Robin, was taking care of her, but Riven, and that's Caleb, and his twin, Joshua, is the one that's missing. But those kids sat at the table through that hour of Bible class. They didn't wiggle. They didn't make noise. They didn't weren't a, a, a distraction. They colored. They had their little things that they did during class, but they were disciplined, and they were well-behaved. Up until about the last generation... That was normal in Christian church life is for families to be at Bible class in the middle of the week. It is not an excuse. You may think it is, parents, those of you watching, (laughs) seeing this on video. But it is not an excuse. When I was a kid and I grew up and, um, you know, my parents had their times for me to go to bed, but Bible class was a priority. If Bible class is a priority, then being in Bible class with other members of the body of Christ is a priority. That is where you teach that priority from day one to your children. 
And that means having them there. I remember that when I grew up going to church, there was no prep school for kids to go to uh, after about the age of three. And I sat in Bible class. It was 10 years before I decided I could ought to stay awake and pay attention to what the pastor said. But I would, you know, color in the bulletin or fill in all the little dots in all the letters. And after about five or ten minutes, my head would sort of keel over onto my dad's shoulder, and I'd be asleep until uh, church was over, but nevertheless well-behaved and in church. And you just didn't miss. You didn't miss Sunday night. You didn't miss Bible class. That was just the way it was. That was a priority. And parents understood that because they were teaching their children that, church and being involved with the body of Christ was a priority, and they understood their responsibility was to discipline the children so that they could be well-behaved and they wouldn't be a distraction in Bible class, and that if they were, then the parents would deal with that immediately, swiftly, and certainly, and so kids did not mess up, and they did not wiggle, and they did not squirm, and if you're a parent... And you think that, well, the reason I'm not going to come to Bible class is my kids just can't sit still. That's your fault, and you need to deal with it, and you need to deal with it now. Because that's your job as a parent is to train those kids to be able to be able to do that. And we should have kids here. We should have parents here. Parents should be teaching their kids that priority. And it's it's really a failure in parenting to not be able to discipline your kids to sit in Bible class, and it's a failure in parenting not to bring your kids to Bible class. And uh, this was just such a great example uh, on the part of uh, Jeremy to have those kids sitting there uh, very well behaved. And trust me, these are kids that are not... Thank you very much. We've been having (laughs) demons in the printer. Okay, this is uh, just a great example for for everyone to see what this is like. We just don't see it. And I don't know a pastor and a church around today that doesn't face this. And for some reason, parents have gotten it into their heads in the last 30 years that, well, you know, because I've got young kids, I just can't get to Bible class. And that is just such a phony phony excuse. If you want to convince yourself it's legitimate, then you've got greater problems. So we're talking about the church and part of, and we're trying to understand the nature of the body of Christ and the importance of people being in church, coming together, and having that sort of body relationship that involves uh, involves everyone. So we're studying the doctrine of one another as we're coming out of our study in Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter 10, which actually relates to the 17th point in our study, because we've spent such a, a good bit of time on this. I haven't, uh, I didn't labor on it much last time. But the 17th point was, by way of review, think about one another to stir them up to love and good deeds. This is brought about by that word let it, that's translated, let us consider one another, and the root word there in the Greek means to give it thought, to meditate on it, to reflect upon it, to, be, to take conscientious actions. So we're to consider one another and the, in order to stir up love, and that means to stimulate, the Greek word from which we get our English word paroxysm, 
It means to stimulate activity, to encourage people. And I talked about, when we went over this, I talked about the couple of illustrations we could use. One, Dan and I were out on the road together. We were talking about this, and we came up with different illustrations. But if you've got a background in any sort of competitive activity, whether it's sports or whether it's military, whether it's in uh, some sort of, of team activity, you can reflect on that when you would get together with a a group of others, and you're all trying to achieve something and to uh, go through a course of uh, course of action together, that what you do is instead of trying to put each other down and compete against each other in that sense, you try to encourage each other and say, come on, everybody, let's go, and you cheer each other on so that that encourages and strengthens one another, coming up with ideas to help those who aren't quite as adept or quite as strong to also do that. You've gone through boot camp. You go through um, various kinds of challenging uh, activities. This is a good thing to do, and that's the same thing. It emphasizes that teamwork attitude that should be present in, in the body of Christ. So that's seen in Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider one another. Uh, in order to stir up love and good works. Now, that idea of one another, I said, don't take that. I think some people tend to look at that and say that means equally every believer. It's almost a, a socialistic idea. We're going to handle everybody equally the same way. But this has to do with the people that you are, who, in whose uh, presence or in whose sphere of influence you are, your friends, the other believers that you know, just to encourage and help one another. That brings us to the 18th point, which is what I ended on last time, just to give you a little teaser for tonight. This is an interesting verse. It's been misapplied many different ways. It's also an interesting a context that we'll have to spend some time on so that we really understand the verse. Now, point 18 and 19 come out of the same verse. 18, the point is that we are to confess to one another. That is, as we'll see, it's not the idea of getting up in some sort of public confession. There are some Christian groups that emphasize that. Uh, it's not necessarily confessing every sin to one another. We don't even do that with God because we don't remember all of them and we, there are sins that we don't know about. But in the context, it really has the idea of recognizing Toward, to one another, certain faults, flaws, mistakes we have made that impact and affect others in the sense of apologizing to others when we wrong them. But this is not some sort of public uh, self-flagellation, which just causes others to have mental attitude sins and gives too many a sense of false humidity and, and pride. This is in James chapter 5, verse 16, where we're told to confess your trespasses to one another. Now that's the first part of the verse. The second part of the verse emphasizes the 19th point, which is to pray for one another. To pray for one another. So we have the whole verse, James 5:16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now right away you see that the purpose clause there, that you may be healed, somewhat narrows the sense of confession to one another and prayer for one another. 
But what in the world does that mean that you may be healed? Now, the problem that we have when we address this particular chapter in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, is because the way it's been traditionally translated into English, people think this relates to physical illness and physical healing. And it's not uncommon that even when people sort of have some suspicions that it's not, and that it's really talking about spiritual problems, they also try to sneak in uh, some sort of psychosomatic type of thing. But that's not what's present here, and I'll show you why as we go through this. So James 5.16 says that we're to confess our sins to one another, we're to pray for one another for the purpose, for the result, that you may be healed. And then it ends with the statement, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So twice in this verse, there is a, a specific mention of the word prayer. You could add confession as a third because you can, you, you can when you confess to God, that's prayer. So uh, prayer is certainly the context of James 5.16. And then it goes on to give an illustration from Elijah, which comes from 1 Kings 17, which we're familiar with because of our study in uh, the life of Elijah. So we look at this verse, and we say there's something here that's just really hard to get our, our hands around. And not only that, but if we look at the, at the previous verse, we look at the previous verse, we read the prayer of faith. Notice prayers mentioned again in that verse, prayer of faith will save the sick. That's not a correct translation. And the Lord will raise him up. Now look at that. Is that a promise? The Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Is this a conditional or an unconditional promise? Are there any conditions there? No, there are no conditions there. It's not saying the prayer of faith will save the sick if it's the will of God. The prayer of faith will save the sick uh, if you're really fervent in your prayer. People will look at this and say, well, I prayed for people who are, who are sick, who are ill, somehow injured, and it's never, it's, nothing's changing things, so obviously God doesn't answer prayer. Others, on the other extreme, will say, well, maybe we have, we're not, just not doing it right. We're not holding our tongue right. We're not using the right kind of oil because in the previous verse, verse 14, it says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So maybe we didn't use enough oil. Maybe we didn't use the right kind of oil. Maybe we used Wesson oil instead of olive oil. Maybe it was virgin olive oil, and it should have been extra virgin olive oil. I mean, people get wrapped around the axle about this kind of stuff. I'm poking a little fun at it, but I'm doing it because I want you to catch the fact that embedded in the middle of this, this, this section here, this paragraph, there is an unconditional promise. So also what will happen is people say, oh, you prayed, but you didn't have enough faith. You have to have the faith of a child. Well, if that were true, as Dan pointed out today, if that were true, then just go get some kid. Let him pray. I point out in the spiritual warfare book that when I was a kid, and I had the faith of a child, not the faith of an adult, and I was six or seven, eight years old, 
My mother had polio. My mother had polio just before I was born. In fact, for that reason, I was born two months early. And she was in an iron lung at the time that I was born, and she did it the natural way long before that was the end thing to do. They just sort of pulled her out of the iron lung, pulled me out, pushed her back in, and that was that. And so she never walked in my lifetime. She, After she got past a certain stage in the polio, then it was time for her to go through physical therapy, and they took her to Warm Springs, which is where Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt had gone for therapy because he is, had, had polio as well, and she was there for a number of months. And during that time, I was sort of shunted around from uh, an aunt to a friend to a college roommate to another friend back to an aunt. And so I really didn't have any close contact. I didn't have any maternal bonding until I was almost a year old. So I guess that explain that's a good excuse. That's why I can get away with all kinds of sins now, I guess, because I didn't have that kind of maternal contact. Well that's just all that psycho garbage. But anyhow so when I got to be seven or eight years old, my mother was still uh, had these braces and she would still try to walk once or twice a week. And and I would just pray like crazy every night, I mean, for years, that God would heal her and she would walk again. That never happened. But I had the faith of a child. So if this, pro- this is an unconditional promise related to physical healing, then we've got a problem. Yeah, we do. And the problem is that this verse in this section doesn't have anything at all to do with physical healing or physical sickness. And unfortunately, our minds have sort of been preset to accept that because of a traditional way of translating this that really doesn't fit the context, and it doesn't fit uh, the, the context of the book or the context of the Scripture. So as we get into this, we need to get into this because it, it helps us to understand in a greater way, what the confession to one another and prayer for one another here is really all about. It's it's nuanced by the context. So we have to look at at two interpretive keys to understand this. First of all, we have to do good word studies. We really have to understand the meaning of these words. But so often... Just the words themselves are not enough. You have to understand words, phrases, context, all these things together. The three key words we really have to understand are the words for suffering, the words for sick, and the words, there's a couple of them used for healing. Uh, Saving the sick or sozo is used there in verse 15. Lord raising him up is used there. Forgiveness is used there. And um, healed is used in in verse 16. So what do these words connote? Secondly, we have a context. We have the immediate context of just this section, which really begins in verse 7. 5, 7 begins the conclusion to this epistle to James. And then you have a, so you have the immediate context of just 13 through 18. You have the intermediate or a little bit broader context of the conclusion, which is verses 7 down to the end of the chapter. That's the conclusion to the epistle. And then you have the whole epistle. The entire epistle itself helps us to understand what this, what the limits are to our interpretation of this section. 
And the reason is, is because when we read through this entire epistle, the, the thrust of this epistle is on challenging believers to hang in there, to hang tough in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of difficult times. The main theme of the epistle is endurance in times of spiritual testing, or to put it in everyday language, the theme of this book is that we should not give up on the application of doctrine, even though the circumstances of our lives may not be what we think they should be. Even if we don't have the jobs we should have, we don't have people responding to us the way we think they ought to respond to us, even though we don't have the marriages that we think we ought to have or the children we think we ought to have or the friends we think we ought to have. When things don't go right the way we think they ought to go, and we keep I'm trying to apply doctrine and I'm claiming this promise, it just doesn't seem to work. Endurance means that we stick with it because it's God's Word, and God's Word is infallible. And so we're going to stick with the application of doctrine, even when the circumstances don't turn out the way that we think they ought to turn out. And that is the major theme of this epistle. And the epistle is set up in an easy, it's a three-point sermon. It's all about hanging tough with doctrine no matter what happens. And this specifically relates to three things. And this is what the writer of James emphasizes in James chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James 1, 1 through 20 is the introduction to this epistle. In that introduction, he starts off in verse 2 saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its completing or maturing result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That is the opening command. And the rest of that this epistle is all about how to do that and how to have that kind of a mental attitude so that you can relax and have joy and happiness in the midst of difficult or adverse circumstances. So that first section has to do with being quick to hear. And so in verse 21, uh, verse 22 rather, uh, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. See, he's talking about being quick to hear. Hearing involves doing or applying the word. Just substitute that idea of application. Hearing means don't you not just hearing is listening, studying, taking notes, gathering the information into your soul. But application means that it's not just filling your doctrinal notebooks. It means putting into practice what the Scripture says to do. When God says do this, you do that. When God says don't do this, you don't do that. It's a matter of just doing what the Word of God says to do. And he gives various applications. Then he deals with a specific instance of a of prejudice in the congregation, starting in the first part of chapter 2, the showing of personal favoritism. And then he comes back to a parallel concept, faith and works. Faith is comparable to hearing. You hear it, you believe it. But Paul says, what good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? But he doesn't have any works. He doesn't have any application. Is that faith? Does that faith 
do anything good for him. That word saved there doesn't mean justification salvation. It means does it have any value for his spiritual growth? No. If you're not applying doctrine, you're not growing. And what, no matter what you say you believe, no matter how much you gather into your doctrinal notebook, it's only application of doctrine under the filling of the Spirit that provides or builds spiritual strength and growth in one's life. So that, that whole section from 121 to 226 deals with being quick to hear. Slow to speak has to do with the tongue. Three one says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, because you know that we will show receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And the whole issue in chapter 3 deals with the sins of the tongue. Be slow to speak. Don't get involved in sins of the tongue. Slow to anger involves mental attitude sins. Another problem that besets the Christian life, and this is the topic covered in chapter 4, starting uh, really transition, they, there's a transition into that at the end of chapter uh, chapter 3 from 13 to 18. There's a connection there with some of the earlier application statements in the first part. And now we come into 4.1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't do they not come from the, your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, mental attitude sin. You do not have. You murder and covet, mental attitude sin, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. It's all about the impact of mental attitude sins. Judging comes up in verse, verse 11. Arrogance and boasting comes up in verse 13 through 17. And then uh, we get down to... 5, 6, that's where that section ends. And in 5, 7, we come back to the main theme. Main theme has to do with endurance. Two words are used, hupomane for endurance or hanging in there. Hupo means under. Uh, mane comes from the Greek word to remain or to abide. And, it, uh, and the idea is to remain in a situation. In other words, don't take the wrong way out just to get out from under the pressure. Stay there applying the word. Don't just bail out through human viewpoint to get out of the situation, but stick stick with it with the word. That also involves patience. Notice how many times. You ought to go through from verse 7 on down to 12 and circle how many times endurance or patience is used. James says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. That's related to endurance and patience. Waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You shall also be patient. Third time now. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. That be a sin of the tongue. See, he's tying these things together, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, verse 11, we count them as blessed who endure, hupomone. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. What's he talking about here? He's talking about enduring in times of testing. Does it make sense that all of a sudden he shifts to getting healed? Well, you can stretch it and say, well, healing's one kind of test. But we're in a conclusion where you're summarizing 
You're dealing with generalities. You're not dealing with specifics like that. So that doesn't fit. He's talking about enduring, having endurance in times of in times of testing. So what we have to do is we have to understand the words that are used here, and we have to understand the context. And physical healing, if that's his topic, comes is abruptly into focus in verse 13, says a few things about it, and that's it. Where'd that come from? You haven't talked about physical problems or sickness at all through the whole book. If that's physical healing, it just comes right out of left field and doesn't have anything to do with the context whatsoever. So let's take a look at what's going on here. And in the first couple of verses, we'll deal with our key words and understand what they're, what they're focusing on. In verse 13, we read the first of three questions, three rhetorical questions the writer raises to focus their attention. He says, first, is anyone among you suffering? Second, is anyone among you cheerful? See, that goes right back to counting it all joy in the first chapter. Is anyone among you Sick, but does he really mean sick? He doesn't. So let's just take it apart. Is anyone among you suffering? And the word there for suffering, and I marked the wrong word there. That shouldn't just ignore the yellow cheerful there, which were so, um, the first phrase should have been marked. Dealing with the word for suffering is kako, kakapatheo. And it means to suffer physical pain or hardship and distress. Uh, to suffer distress, suffer pain, suffering hardship, it's a basic word for adversity. It doesn't mean that you're just uh, crying and whining about things. Uh, sometimes it's just that things don't go the way you think they ought to go. You've been dealing with a physical problem or you've been dealing with uh, anything from a, a medical situation or maybe you're dealing with a problem at work or maybe you're living in an environment where there's uh, a lot of problems economically, you've lost your job. It could be any number of things where you're facing difficult life circumstances. Could be difficulty in a marriage, could be difficulty in a job, could be just difficulty dealing with certain circumstances that you have in your life. So what's the solution? The solution is let him pray. That's the focal point in this whole section. Prayer is mentioned in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then it is implied in verse 19 because that's the way uh, someone turns someone else back from sin in their life. So the first question is, is anyone among you suffering? We could uh, paraphrase that, is anyone among you going through some kind of adversity? Solution, let him pray. Second, is anyone among you cheerful? Are you experiencing joy in the midst of your adversity? Then sing psalms. That is, sing praise to God. Now, in order for you to sing praises to God when you're going through situations in your life and you're joyful, you have to know them. That means that uh, you need to sing them rather frequently at church, which is why we have sung a number of hymns quite frequently, as I'm hoping that people can learn those hymns and memorize them so that they, they can sing them. You can't apply a verse like this if you can't go home and sing at least 15 or 20 hymns from memory. You, you start off with the first line, and then all of a sudden you're just 
you know what you do. You just start humming the next three lines, and then you remember two words, and then you go on. We've all done that. But we need to learn these things, these hymns, so that we can sing them. And that's there's a method, a strategy to why I do what I do on, on Sunday morning, so we can really learn and know know some hymns. Now, the word for suffering is, was used just three verses earlier. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the prophets went through this kind of suffering. When they did what the Lord said to do, they faced opposition, they faced adversity, they faced negative consequences. And that is what's going to happen to us when we are faithful to the Lord in doing what he says to do. We are going to face opposition, adversity in life. Satan hates anyone who's trying to consistently apply the word of God. And so we know that there are going to be problems that we face because that's just the way the cosmic system is. And we have one basic problem that always gets every single one of us, and that is the problem of our own arrogance, the problem of our own arrogance. Uh, Suffering, basically, for most of us, is just because things don't go the way we think they ought to go. Now, sometimes, some of you have heard it said that maybe one reason a lot of you are going through suffering in life is because you just have a lot of unrealistic expectations. Now, my experience is that most of us quit having unrealistic expectations when we were in our 20s, we began to get a pretty good handle on the way life was. We may have thought that we may succeed in this area or that area, and we discover that, well, we're probably not quite going to do that. We may have a measure of success in whatever it is we do, but we're not going to be president of the United States or president, CEO of, of uh, some great corporation but we are going to have realistic expectations. And I find that most people have realistic expectations about life. They expect to have a good, happy marriage. That's a realistic expectation. They expect to have children to grow up and to be uh, happy and to be successful and to love the Lord. That is not an unrealistic expectation. They expect to have a job and to enjoy their job and to uh, be involved in a good local church. And these are not unrealistic expectations. They are uh, realistic expectations. The real contrast is is that we have legitimate expectations, but in arrogance they can become illegitimate expectations. Because arrogance takes us from the realm of legitimacy to the realm of presumption. Presumption is arrogance. When we think that we have a right, I have a right to having a certain kind of marriage. I have a right to these children growing up a certain way and and uh, following what I have taught them. I have a right to a job. And I haven't had a job in nine months, Lord. I have a right to a job. You said so. You take care of me. Well, you're not dead yet. Lord's been taking care of you. We have we when we move from a our and and, and it's it's insidious and it's easy. It ha, every one of us does this. We start thinking we have a right that after we have poured all this time and effort into those children, that they should be obedient to the Lord and obedient to us and agree with us and with our beliefs and what we've taught them, and. If we, if they don't go that way, then that's a test. 
See, the Lord has a habit of bringing tests into our lives that expose when we've taken these legitimate expectations and we've made, we've made idols out of them and we have falsified them and we have become presumptuous in those expectations. And all of a sudden what happens is when the Lord takes that away from us or when something happens like with Job, and we get, and what did his wife say? Well, curse God and die. See, that's when the legitimate expectation became an illegitimate expectation by virtue of arrogance. When people think they have a right to something and then God does something else, then they get angry, they get depressed, they get bitter against God. It's because they've reacted wrongly to the change in those uh, those circumstances. So adversity is often self-induced simply because of our own uh, arrogance. But adversity also comes along simply because we go through unexpected turns and circumstances in life that aren't what we would desire. So we have to learn how to submit our will to God's will. So the, the passage says, Is anyone among you suffering? Or that is going through adversity. Let him praise anyone among you cheerful. And that's the Greek word, Uthemeo, which has to do with being encouraged and hence being cheerful. And so this is a the positive response for the believer who looks at those difficult circumstances, is able to count it joy. It's not because it's the way he wanted it to be, but because, because he understands God's plans and God's purposes. And then the third question comes up in 514, is anyone among you sick? And that's how it is normally translated, but the real issue here has to do with understanding this word. And unless we understand the question, we can't really understand the answer, which has to do with calling the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So let's first deal with the question, is anyone among you sick? The Greek word for sick is os, os the neos, the verb, and it is formed on two words. The alpha prefix, the A, is like our UN. It's a negative. And stenes, the noun, or steneo, is a word for strength and literally means without strength. Now, we can be without strength in any number of areas, and there's three areas of being without strength that this word is used in terms of its, its, uh, its application or its usage. One is to be without strength physically. And that implies some sort of sickness or illness. And so the word is legitimately translated that way in a number of passages. In fact, it's almost two-thirds of its uses or more in the Gospels has to do with being physically sick. But the other third doesn't have to do with being physically sick. It has to do with having another way of being without strength, and that is without strength spiritually, being spiritually weak being spiritually worn out, giving up spiritually. And so that's the second idea, is to be without strength spiritually. And the third is to be without strength financially, to be broke, to be uh, without any money, without any financial capability. So those are the three ways in which the word the word is used. Now let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 25:44 which is towards the end of the Olivet Discourse, the Lord says to his, says to his disciples, 
uh, gives them the uh, the parable of the uh, sheep and the dealing with the sheep and the goat judgments, and in the midst of that, uh, he's talking about the fact that there will there were those who are who are rewarded because when they saw the Lord hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, that they took care of him, and so. He has that response here, that quote here, and they're asking them, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, or naked, sick, or in prison, did not take care of you? And there the word is asthenes, and it has to do with being sick, physically sick. But in the very next chapter in Matthew, as Jesus is speaking to his uh, disciples, and as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, testing, which is a major theme in James. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Didn't say the flesh is sick. So here are the two examples, one where it's physically sick, one where it's spiritually sick. And notice that the spiritual weakness is in a context talking about temptation. Okay, so that's the context of James. A third verse that um, third verse that comes along that uses this word is in First Corinthians chapter eleven. Now, the context of First Corinthians chapter eleven is when Paul is talking to or rebuking the Corinthians because of their coming to the Lord's table and abusing the Lord's table. And so he says, for this reason, because they haven't been confessing their sin, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Guess what that word is that's translated weak there? It's the word ostenes. The word that's translated sick is the word that's on the screen, arostos. And that word means ill, sick, or being an invalid. That is a specific word that always has to do with being being sick. So Paul is saying that some of you become spiritually weak and weary because of, of unconfessed sin in your life. That's part of that divine discipline. Some of you have become physically ill, divine discipline, a little stronger divine discipline. Others have died the sin unto death because of their... Uh, arrogance towards God, towards the Lord's table. So we come to our verse, and we see that it says, Is anyone among you uh, ostenes? Well, the idea there is that this is being weary. It fits the context of James more than physical sickness does. fits the context more, much more than physical physical sickness does. Now, the next thing that we ought to look at the next uh, verse that we ought to look at to understand this a little bit is the parallel that comes up in verse 15. Verse 15 we read, And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And it's translated sick, but it's a different word in the Greek. It's, it's uh, not ostineo, it's komno. To be weary, to be exhausted. Now this word is only used twice in Scripture, but it's used a third time in Revelation 2-3 in a variant reading in, in the Greek text. But even though it's not the accepted scriptural reading, it still shows us that the word was understood to mean weary as opposed to sick. It's used in Hebrews 12-3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
And then Revelation 2.3 says, You've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So you see, asthenes is this big, broad word that can mean one of two things. But komno is a word that is narrower, and it doesn't ever mean sick in the Scriptures. It always means weary. So that more specific, that tighter synonym tells us that in this context, the writer is thinking of asthenes, not in terms of physical sickness, but in terms of being spiritual weary as they undergo uh, the tests of faith, going back to the first chapter, the first chapter in the first chapter in James. And so all of this ties together. Now turn back with me, just hold your place, turn back with me uh, to that first chapter in James. My brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, what's the opposite of endurance? The opposite of endurance is growing weary, wanting to give up. And so what we're dealing with here in James 5 is the one that is giving up in the midst of the adversity. Now, there's um, the next verse that comes along, or the next thing we want to look at is this verse here, verse at the last part of verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's a couple of different ways people try to handle the anointing with oil that sound good, but they're not. Um, the word that's translated anoint is the verb alepho. And there are actually two words translated anoint in the New Testament. The first one is alepho, and the second one is the one that I have pointed out in the bottom line there. It's creo. That's the verb that's related to the noun Christos. Christos means the anointed one, the Mashiach, the anointed one. Creo has to do with a ceremonial or spiritual anointing. There's, that's not the word that's used here. This is used of the everyday act of anointing. The everyday act of anointing is, some of you guys may be involved in this, probably not, but some of you may be. Um, some, I know most of you ladies are. You get up and you anoint your face every morning and you anoint your face every night. You put various creams and makeup, things like that on. You put sunscreen on, various lotions, things like that. Some of you guys may put sunscreen on on your face during the day. It's a great idea to uh, deal with the threat of uh, uh, skin cancer, something like that. That's what they did in the ancient world, just as a part of the normal activities of hygiene is that they would put oil in their hair, they would put oil on their skin, and this was, was fairly, uh, fairly normative. So it was also done as refreshment. In the Gospels, we have the woman who came and who anointed the Lord's feet. It was a sign of honor and respect, but she was doing it as an act of, of refreshing him, anointing him with perfume. She anointed his, uh, his hair with oil, things of that nature. This was an act of refreshment and an act of encouragement. So that was the purpose of anointing. Uh, when the Lord was rebuking the Pharisees, and when it came to their, um, when it came to the way that they would fast, and they would 
fast and pray, and they would say, you know, don't fast and pray in public so everybody knows that you're you're going through this fasting, this suffering. Says, but you know, anoint yourself. You know, keep it quiet. Don't go around looking like you're suffering for God. Uh, anoint yourself. In other words, to bring it into our modern context. Get up in the morning, take a shower, wash your hair, shave, put on clean clothes. Don't walk around like you're going through some sort of spiritual, spiritual ascetic exercise. You haven't uh, shaved or taken a shower or combed your hair for three or four days, and somehow that makes you a little uh, closer to God. We may all wish you were closer to God because of the way you smell, but... Um, that doesn't make you closer to God. That was the idea. And so what's going on here is that he's to call not for the... the, James is one of the earliest epistles. I think it's the earliest epistle written. It's written a long time before the church takes on a Jewish Gentile and later mostly a Gentile orientation. It's written a long time before... Paul has received any revelation about the organization order of the church long time before he writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. I think James was written as early as 40 or 41. Some think it might have even been written in 38 or 39 B.C. It's very, very early. And in these early epistles like 1 Peter and James, the church is viewed as, and the word here for church is really the synagogue. Synagogue, it's not ecclesia. So we're not talking about the church. We're talking about the assembly, rather. And the word for elders there, it shouldn't be understood in the technical sense of a church leader later on, but as mature believers. You look back in James chapter 2, it says, My, uh, if there should be a man coming into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. So here it's talking about the synagogue again, uh, the synagogue. And so uh, the question there is, is this dealing with someone who is, uh, is this the presbyteroi here, is this dealing with someone who is, who is uh, excuse me, this is, it's ecclesia in, um, in verse 14, uh, 514, they're not synagogue, but, but it still has the non-technical sense there, not the, uh, not that leader that you have in, uh, 1st Timothy, but just a mature person in the assembly. Ecclesia is used in a non-technical and also in a technical sense in the New Testament. So this would be the meeting of believers, but as I pointed out earlier in James chapter 2, verse 2, uh, it's sunagoge, for if there should come into your sunagoge a man with gold rings. So it's a Jewish context. The letter of James is written to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. It has this Jewish orientation very early, very early in the church age. So the application there is that if you're really struggling spiritually in your life, then you should have mature believers who know how to get their prayers answered praying for you. And that is also supported by the last, uh, by the last verse there, uh, verse six, last part of verse 16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So he's not talking about an office of the church, he's talking about a mature believer. And so we have to understand it that way in terms of the early part of the church. Now let me just, we just have a short amount of time here, 
and I want to point out the words that are used for healing. Words that are used for healing are really, really four. We have sozo, which means to save, to keep from harm, to deliver, persevere, or rescue. In a lot of cases in the New Testament, the word save doesn't mean justification. It means deliverance from a problem. Also, we have the fact that afiemi is used here, forgiven, that part, that the problem here has to do with sin and forgiveness. It's a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. Hiaomai is the word that's translated healing down in verse 16. Uh, confess your trespasses or sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Hiaomai. Hiaomai can mean to be cured from an illness, but it also has the idea of being restored. And then the, I, the word egairo, the Lord will raise him up, is used literally as someone who's raised up from a sick bed. They've been lying down and they stand up. Or it can refer to someone who is just uh, lifted up, encouraged spiritually, someone who is able now to go forward and they've resolved that problem. Now, as we come to the uh, conclusion of this section, what we see when we come to verse the next verse is that the illustration doesn't have to do with physical healing. The illustration comes from verse 17 and 18, in verse 17 and 18, where we have uh, a reference to Elijah. James 5:17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Now, where did that happen? What chapter in the Bible? Come on, y'all ought to know this easy. 1 Kings 17 happens in the first part of 1 Kings 17. What happens in the last part of 1 Kings 17? The widow's son dies. Elijah goes up, lies on top of him, brings him back to life. You have physical healing there, right? So if James is talking about physical healing, why does he choose an illustration from the first part of the chapter, which has to do with prayer and uh, perseverance in testing, instead of the event in the second half of that chapter, which has to do with physical healing. See, if I'm going to talk about physical healing, I'm going to choose the event at the end of the chapter because that fits the topic of physical healing. But if I'm talking about spiritual, uh, spiritual strengthening in times of adversity, then I'm going to talk about uh, what happens in the first part of the chapter. So the illustration that comes comes from the first part of 1 Kings 17 and not the last part, which fits the context of James dealing with perseverance in times of testing. Now let's go back to the first part of the chapter and sort of tie this together, first part of the book. James 1, 2 through 4, the emphasis is on counting it joy when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience, it produces endurance, hupopone. But let endurance, same word, hupomene, have its mature, teleos, perfect work, that you may be complete, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, what's the, what's, what's the next thing going to say? If you lack something, that is, if you lack wisdom, which is the application of doctrine, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, 
and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what's the solution? If you don't have wisdom, you don't know how to apply doctrine in the test you're going through, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. Now, what happens if you doubt? Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So you get the weak believer who is just weary and worn out, and he just wonders if God even cares about him anymore. He's fallen asleep. He's forgotten about me. What's the solution? Well, you're not going to get your prayers answered because you're doubting. So who are you to call? Not Ghostbusters. You call for the mature believers. For those who are righteous, the righteous man whose fervent prayer uh, avails much. So this is the focus. If you are the weak believer, you're doubting God, they're told, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the solution is to call on the mature believer in prayer. Now this also fits with the closing verses of the... um, of the passage. Closing verses of the passage in verse 19 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, the one wandering from the truth is the believer that's weary, that's falling away. And someone turns him back, how? By praying for him, by encouraging him, by praying for him that he will be strong in times of testing. Verse 20, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways, that's not going across to somebody after church and say, I know that sin that you're committing. It's praying for them in their time of testing. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save, that is, deliver a soul from death. That's, what kind of death is that? It's not eternal death. It's carnal death. Here's somebody who's going to go into carnality, give up on God, and just live out of fellowship on the sin nature. And here's a mature believer who's going to pray for one another. And if he turns the one who is falling away from the error of his way, it will deliver a soul from carnal death, from staying out of fellowship, and cover a multitude of sins. So that's the context of confessing your sins to one another. It's the one another refers to those who are within this problem context of the one who is weak and struggling, uh, giving up on God, and the mature believers who are praying for him. That's who the confession is going to. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another in that context, that you may be healed, that you may be restored, would be a better way of translating that, that you may be strengthened instead of being without strength, that is, uh, weary or weak, and then the promise, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, that is, one who is experientially righteous, mature, avails much. And so you see this fits, the whole context here fits together, fits with the message of the epistle, fits, it mirrors the message of the first chapter, expands on it, tightens it up for the conclusion, and makes us realize how important it is for us to be praying for others because we know of others who are struggling in their spiritual life. We know of others who are uh, facing particular uh, trials and difficulties. And it's also good for us to have 
uh, good communication with believers that are more mature than we are so that they will be praying for us as we go through various uh, times of testing uh, in our own life. So let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to study your word, to be reminded that prayer is effective. Prayer is important. Prayer is a means of communicating with you and that you answer prayer. And you give us promises that in context where we are struggling, where there's a, someone who is weak, weary, and where mature believers pray, then you answer that prayer and you strengthen through your word and the Holy Spirit, the one who is the one who is weary. Father, help us to understand how to apply these things. May we gain a fresh appreciation for the importance of the body of believers around us and our mutual ministry to one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.